A Japan Airlines 747 takes off out of Tokyo and has to return to the airport shortly after. How does a close encounter with another aircraft cause this flight to emergency land? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. This is a long one. This is going to be a long one. I apologize in advance. I have cough drops. It's okay. I might hear some clanking, clacking against my teeth. <laughs> I also, might need so. one based on how much talking I'm going to be doing. There's also a cat who is obsessively trying to be in front of me. So all these things are happening. We have two new patrons. We do have two new patrons. Woo! Our new patrons are Lindsay and our good friend Aaron. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> and as of basically nearly the end of November, we are all caught up on sending things. Yes. So yes. if you haven't received your stuff by, say, the end of December, and you were a patron or requested ducks or something of that sort by basically the end of November, then please let us know. Also, one of you both is getting merch and ducks in the same package. Yes. So congrats to you. Get all the things. All of the things. All right. I think that's all for... Housekeeping. Housekeeping. For now. I'm aware. For now. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today. We're covering a thing. We are covering a thing. I called it the 2001 Tokyo Near Miss. I'm not going to hide anything. (laughs) (laughs) So, I will give this away in the title. Thanks to... Thank you to our listeners, Will and Brian, for recommending this episode. Thank you. This one was not a small one. Mainly because of the size and scope of the report. Holy crap. Oh my god. This was a headache, to say the least. But we managed to pull something together, so that's where we're at. This occurred on January 31st of 2001. So toward the end of January 2001. We are talking about two airplanes in particular, as you might have gathered from the title. We'll start with Japan Airlines Flight 907. This was a Boeing 747-400D with the tail number Juliet Alpha 8904. The 400D was a really interesting version of the 747 that's unique basically to Japan Airlines because it was a 400, so it had the longer upper deck, and it had the newer engines, but it was the domestic setup, so it was a very dense airplane. It had a lot of people in it, and it also didn't have winglets because they didn't really care as much about efficiency or how much fuel it could carry. They wanted it to carry more people and stuff. So basically, this was a specially designed version of the 747-400 for Japan Airlines that allowed it to carry a lot more people and stuff rather than fuel. This one was a flight from Tokyo Haneda Airport to Naha in Okinawa, Japan. Haneda Airport, we'll talk about this because it does matter. Haneda Airport is the one that's smack in the middle of Tokyo. It's built basically on the water, and it is... The center of everything. It's one of the busiest airports on Earth. And of course, this day and age, it is very much the desired airport to fly in and out of in Tokyo. We'll talk about the other one in a minute. But Haneda is the preferred. And it really is in the center of everything at the time. It was called Tokyo International, but it was just on the cusp of being called Haneda, specifically. The captain of the 747 was Makoto Watanabe. He was 40 years old. He had 7,446 hours total, of which 3,758 were on the 747. And that dwarfs the rest of his crew. 
by a lot. I don't have names for the rest of his crew. The first first officer was 28 years old. He had 596 hours total, flying a 747, of which 288 hours were on the 747. (laughs) Most of his time was on the 747, but this is all pretty negligible. He doesn't even have 1,000 hours. He has 569. That's not a lot. And yet he is the second highest hours in the cockpit out of four. So that's a thing. And actually, I don't think that he was in a flying seat at any point in time during this flight. He was in a jump seat because there were two pilots in the jump seats behind them. And he was part of the flying crew, but he wasn't actively doing the flying duties. He was basically allowing the takeoff and climb leg for one of the training first officers, which I'll talk about now. The second first officer was 26 years old, so two years younger. He had 303 hours total, of which 29 were on the 747. And that was the first officer in the right seat, if my understanding is correct, because I couldn't ever figure this out. They never really clarified this, but that's my understanding. And then there was a third first officer who was also in training. I don't have their age or any of their hours, not a clue, but they were basically brand new is my understanding. So they were also there. They don't bring them up at any point in time. I just know they exist. That is basically it. The other flight, Japan Airlines Flight 958, was a Douglas DC-1040. So it is a DC-10, three engine. We haven't talked about a DC-10 in a while, but it is also quite a large wide-body aircraft, also pretty dense setup. The 40 is a longer-range version of the 30, which also had a center wheel, which allowed it to carry more weight, which allowed it to carry more fuel. So the 40 is a little bit heavier version of the DC-10, and it has a center wheel under the middle fuel tank. So it's kind of one of the weird things about the DC-10 is that it had a center wheel, but that's a thing. This one, the tail number was Juliet Alpha 8546, and it was flying from Gimhae International Airport in Busan, South Korea, to Tokyo Narita, the other one, which at the time was New Tokyo International Airport. It's how they listed it throughout most of the report, but it was on the verge of being called Narita. It was called Narita Approach. Right. I refer to them as Haneda and Narita. Right. This is the not-preferred airport, because depending on where you live in Tokyo, this is two or more hours away. (laughs) However, it is closest to Tokyo, of all cities. And they had to build an airport out there because basically Haneda was at capacity, and still really it is. And they still needed to get a lot more flights in and out of Tokyo because it is just a massive city. And they just couldn't handle expanding and expanding and expanding Haneda at such a pace. So they built an airport out in the middle of nowhere. Just like we did here in yeah, Denver. I was say, like <laughs> Just like we did here in Denver, where they had lots of space to do so. And yet they still had fights over land. That's a whole thing. But is that the one with the farm in the middle? Yes, it is. That is the one with the farm in the middle of it. So yeah, that's built out in the middle of nowhere. It's also a very large and busy airport. So two different airplanes heading to and from two different airports in Tokyo. The captain of the DC 10 was Tatsuyuki Akazawa. He was 45 years old. He had 6,584 hours total, of which 5,689 hours were on the type. I don't think we've ever talked about a crew member with a pretty relatively high number of hours who proportionally has so many hours on one type of aircraft out of all of that, because that is just a little under 1,000 hours on something else, basically, out of his 6,584. We probably have, but it's very few and far between. Yeah, that's not very common. The weird thing about this flight, this captain is sitting in the right seat. 
not the left seat. The first officer was 49 years old. He had 4,333 hours, of which 3,873 hours were on the DC-10. He was training to be captain, so he was sitting in the left seat performing flying duties. Okay. He was the pilot flying. And at the time, Japan Airlines' way of doing that was to put that training captain in the left seat for the pilot flying duties, training for captain. So doesn't really matter, ultimately. But yeah, the first officer's sitting in the left seat doing pilot flying duties. Don't have any names for that first officer, nor do I have the name for the flight engineer, who was 43 years old and had 8,336 hours, the most out of all of these crew we've talked about, and all of those are on the DC-10. See, but that doesn't surprise me, because we've talked about flight engineers that they make their career as a flight engineer, and they stay on one flight, one plane for their whole career, and that's what they do. Yep, yep, and that's exactly what this flight engineer did. That flight had departed Busan with 237 passengers and 13 crew. I bring that up now because we'll go back to Japan Airlines Flight 907 now. So like I said, January 31st, 2001, Japan Airlines Flight 907 in Tokyo at Haneda. They took on 411 passengers and 16 crew. That is nuts. (laughs) That's a lot of people. We have previously talked about a Japan Airlines flight that also had a lot of passengers, and that one did not go well. There was an IFR, or Instrument Flight Rules, flight plan filed for Japan Airlines Flight 907 that included a scheduled departure time of 3.25 p.m. local time and had them cruising at 497 knots at flight level 390, or 39,000 feet, for an estimated flight time of 2 hours and 22 minutes down to Okinawa. Japan Airlines Flight 907 departed Haneda at 3.36 p.m. local time from runway 34 right at Haneda. The flight was cleared to climb to flight level 390, or 39,000 feet, shortly after takeoff. So they were like, cool, just go straight to cruising altitude. As Japan Airlines 907 passed 11,000 feet, the flight crew contacted Tokyo Area Control Center, or ACC, Sector C Control. It has an even more complicated name than that, but this is important. Which had three different controllers on duty at the time. A trainee, seated at the radar, doing the primary air traffic control duties. A supervisor, overseeing all of this. And a coordinator, who doesn't really come up other than this. So, that's the thing. 3.41 p.m. and 16 seconds. Japan Airlines Flight 907 informed these air traffic controllers that they were climbing through 11,000 feet for flight level 390, and the air traffic controller acknowledged. 3.42 p.m. and 12 seconds, so about a minute later, all the way till 3.44 p.m. and 33 seconds, the radar controller instructed Japan Airlines Flight 907 to fly direct to Yaizu, which is... Yaizu. Yaizu, which is Yankee Alpha India Zulu uniform, NDB, and the flight crew acknowledged. So this is just a point... It's a non-directional beacon. It is a non-directional beacon, but this is just a point along their route. It doesn't actually matter what the function of it does. That is just their point. 3.54 p.m. and 25 seconds, the radar controller instructed Japan Airlines 907 to climb to flight level 350 only until further notice, and the flight acknowledged this instruction. So now they're being told, instead of going all the way to 39,000 feet, go to 35. They're still very much climbing. Meanwhile, another flight, American Airlines Flight 157, Yep, this just keeps getting more and more confusing, I promise. <laughs> was cruising at flight level 390, 39,000 feet, at Izu Oshima toward Kushimoto at the time, which had them flying at the same flight level that Japan Airlines 907 was planning to cruise at in the same area. So there's right. a few things happening here. 3.46 p.m. and 38 seconds, Japan Airlines 907 was climbing through flight level 216, or 21,600 feet, when the radar controller instructed them to climb to flight level 390 again. The flight acknowledged these instructions. 
3.46 p.m. and 51 seconds, Japan Airlines Flight 958, the other one, the DC-10, was arriving into the Tokyo control area and was passed to the Tokyo ACC Sector C controller, so the same controller. At the time, the letters HND appeared and were flashing on the data block for this aircraft target on the ATC radar. So it's kind of a long story about why. It means handoff. Right. This is the handoff indication. You can see how this might be a little confusing, though. But also, this means handoff to them. So they've been handed off. They have to accept the airplane in order for that to stop flashing, basically. So this is a digital way of transferring an aircraft from one air traffic controller to another, and this is brilliant. But we'll get to that later. 3.47 p.m. in two seconds, the radar controller instructed American Airlines Flight 157 to descend to flight level 350 as it was occupying the planned flight level for flight 907. But flight 157 did not respond to this instruction. Fantastic. 3.47 p.m. in 14 seconds, a fourth aircraft, Japan Airlines Flight 952, <laughs> just to add to the confusion, made a call to the radar controller requesting to fly direct to a fix in the vicinity of Narita, and the radar controller instructed the flight to stand by because they were already trying to deal with something else. 9.47 p.m. in 56 seconds, so a few seconds later, the radar controller made another call to American Airlines Flight 157 but still received no response. 3.48 p.m. in 8 seconds, the radar controller instructed Japan Airlines Flight 952 to contact Narita Tower, and the aircraft acknowledged the handoff. So that's the fourth airplane. And this is the last time we'll talk about them. But that call sign is confusing, and it's happening in the middle of all of this. 3.48 p.m. in 14 seconds. You said 9 earlier? You said 9-something? Nine 9.52. No, like a time. I did? Yes. When did I say that? I got real confused. Oh, I didn't hear that. I don't know when I said that, but I'm talking about all within basically a half hour span. Okay. Just so we're clear. So this is all happening 3.40-ish right now. All between 3.40 and 3.50. We'll get there. Anyways, 3.48 p.m. in 14 seconds, Japan Airlines Flight 958 made initial contact with the air traffic controller, stating to the radar controller that they were cruising at flight level 370 or 37,000 feet at the time, and the radar controller acknowledged this. So now they had the handoff. They actually had the airplane. They've talked to them. They know where they're at. At the time, Japan Airlines Flight 958 was cruising to the west of Japan Airlines Flight 907. 3.48 p.m. and 37 seconds, American Airlines Flight 157 finally contacted the radar controller, stating that they were flying at flight level 390. The radar controller subsequently told them to descend to flight level 350 again, as there was another aircraft aiming for flight level 390 in their area, and that would be Japan Airlines Flight 907. The crew of Flight... 157, or American Airlines Flight 157, acknowledged this instruction and stated that they were leaving flight level 390, so now they were descending. 3.53 p.m. and 50 seconds, a little over four minutes later, Japan Airlines Flight 907 was climbing in a heading of 270 when they began a left turn on a 25-degree bank angle. Ten seconds later, Japan Airlines Flight 958 was cruising at flight level 370 at 567 knots, on a heading of 095. It is moving like a bat out of hell. <laughs> 3.54 p.m. and 15 seconds, so five seconds after that, the radar controller's screen indicated a conflict alert. So there's two airplanes nearing each other. Japan Airlines Flight 907 was indicating flight level 367, or 36,700 feet, and climbing, while Japan Airlines Flight 958 was depicting flight level 370, flying level at 37,000 feet, so just 300 feet above. This is what the radar controller could see. Three seconds later, the TCAS, or Traffic Collision Avoidance System, and Japan Airlines Flight 958, the DC-10, issued a traffic advisory, a TA, to the crew, showing another aircraft was approaching in the area. 
So there's another airplane mighty nearby that is approaching quickly. One second later, Japan Airlines Flight 907 received a similar traffic alert while still in a climbing left turn at flight level 369. So they're at 36,900 feet. Just 100 feet short of that 37,000 feet that the other one's at. Between 3.54 p.m. and 26 seconds and 3.54 p.m. and 29 seconds, so about a three-second period, somewhere in there, the auto throttle on Japan Airlines Flight 958 was disconnected. So on the DC-10, they turned off the auto throttle. At 9.54 p.m. and 27 seconds, the radar controller instructed Japan Airlines Flight 907 to descend to flight level 350 due to traffic. So the air traffic controller sees this conflict and decided that flight 907 needs to descend. That's the 747 that's in a climbing left turn. 3.54 p.m. and 32 seconds, the autopilot on Japan Airlines Flight 907 was disengaged. 3.54 p.m. and 33 seconds, Japan Airlines Flight 907 was climbing through flight level 371, so now they're at 37,100 feet, when they responded to the radar controller's instructions and began descending, stating that they had the traffic visually. They saw the DC-10. Simultaneously, the TCAS began sounding a resolution advisory in the cockpit of Flight 907, stating, Climb! 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 At a rate of 1,500 feet per minute, it suggested. So it wants the 747 to climb, and they've just been instructed by the air traffic controller to descend. Yeah, but we talked about this with the Uberlingen crash that... Which you, happened a year and a half later. You are right. That you really should do what the TCAS tells you to. You are right. Emphasis that that was a year and a half later. Also, you are right. Japan Airlines Flight 907 immediately began descending. <sighs> Simultaneous to all of that, the TCAS in Japan Airlines Flight 958, the DC-10, began issuing a resolution advisory, or an RA, to descend at 1,500 feet per minute. So it was saying, descend, 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 and indicating on the screen to descend at 1,500 feet per minute. At this point, on their displays, both aircraft would show the opposite aircraft as a yellow target on their displays in the aircraft, saying... It would be red. Or sorry, red, yeah. It's yellow when they have the traffic alert, and then red when they have the resolution advisory. advisory. So now that they've both had the resolution advisory issued, both aircraft are showing red on their displays. This airplane is dangerously close. 3.54 p.m. and 38 seconds, the autothrottle was disengaged on Japan Airlines Flight 907, so now the 747 has disengaged the autothrottle as well. 3.54 p.m. and 38 seconds, the radar controller instructed Japan Airlines Flight 958 to turn to a heading of 130 degrees to establish separation, but Japan Airlines Flight 958 did not respond to that, the DC-10. So now he's telling the DC-10 to turn away from the traffic, but they didn't respond to that. Simultaneously to that call, the autothrottle on Japan Airlines Flight 958 was disengaged, or the autopilot was disengaged. So at this point... The autopilot and the autothrottle have both been disengaged on 958. The autothrottle has been disengaged on 907. Hasn't the autopilot also been disengaged yeah, on 907? I think so, yeah. I think both have been disengaged. Basically, they're all hand-flying at this point, the two airplanes, which at this point just seems like, I mean, both yes and mm, dangerous. <laughs> but we'll talk a lot about that later on because... It gets worse. It does get worse. It gets worse. 3.54 p.m. and 43 seconds, Japan Airlines Flight 907 reached the top of its climb at flight level 372, so 37,200 feet, before descending. So inertia carried it all the way up to 37,200 feet before it finally started descending. At that time, Japan Airlines Flight 958 began descending as well, from 37,000 feet. Three seconds later, the left bank of Japan Airlines Flight 907 briefly increased to 30 degrees before the aircraft slowly rolled out on a heading of 207 degrees. So not its target, but it rolled out to level. 
now. It's hard to tell at this point. Like, because he's hand flying, it's hard to actually roll out to your assigned heading. Correct. And on top of that, they're just more focused on the traffic situation. (laughs) 3.54 p.m. and 49 seconds, the TCAS on Japan Airlines 958 issued an increase in descent rate as part of the resolution advisory, commanding a 2,500 foot per minute descent now, so an extra 1,000 feet per minute in descent. Japan Airlines 958 was at flight level 369 at the time, so now they're 100 feet below their cruising altitude. They're at 36,900 feet. 3.54 p.m. and 49 seconds, so simultaneously. The radar controller instructed Japan Airlines Flight 958 to turn to 140 degrees to establish separation, but once again received no reply. So, still trying to tell them to turn, and they're still not replying. 3.54 p.m. and 55 seconds. The air traffic controller supervisor overrode the radar controller, the trainee, and instructed Japan Airlines Flight 957 to start a descent, but this flight number did not exist in their control area, so it's a little unclear who they were actually trying to talk to. It's a combination of the two flight numbers. It is a combination of the two flight numbers. 3.55 p.m. in two seconds. The supervisor instructed Japan Airlines Flight 907 to climb to flight level 390, but the flight did not respond. So now the 747 is not responding either to now an opposite instruction to climb. 3.55 p.m. in 5 seconds, so 3 seconds later, Japan Airlines Flight 907's pitch attitude increased more in the nose-down direction. So they were already pointed nose-down, and they increased more. And who was this? This is the 747. Okay. Simultaneously, Japan Airlines 958, the DC-10, began pitching from nose-down to nose-up while at flight level 362, so 36,200 feet. So really what this means is they didn't really go... Up. They didn't start ascending. They just, they just stopped descending. kind of stopped descending at the rate they were. One second later, while also at flight level 362, the TCAS on Japan Airlines Flight 907 issued an increase in climb rate as part of the resolution advisory to a 2,500 foot per minute climb. <laughs> so TCAS is really like, no, really that way. Up. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Also at that time, the speed of Japan Airlines Flight 907 had been stable at 284 knots, indicated, but it now began increasing because they were pitched down. Two seconds later, the nose-down pitch angle of Flight 907 reached a maximum of 10.8 degrees pitched down before gradually beginning to pitch back up to level. So that doesn't sound like a lot. How they got there is the important thing, but they pitched all the way down to 10.8 degrees nose down, which, to be honest, in a descent on an airliner that's moving at that speed is kind of a lot. 10 degrees nose up isn't a lot because it takes a lot to make an airplane go up. It doesn't take a lot to make an airplane go down, it turns out. And because of that, 10.8 degrees is significant. It's like turning right when you're on a thoroughfare isn't that bad, but turning right while you're on the highway Mm -hmm. going 80 miles an hour. Right. Most aircraft can... Drastically different. Yeah. Most aircraft can actually descend by just reducing throttles to idle and holding the airplane level. And that's usually how most ascents are done. I mean, they might pitch over just a little bit, but usually they'll keep about wings level to two to three degrees down. 10.8 degrees is pretty significant, to be honest. One second later, the aircraft throttles had been reduced to idle as the aircraft reached flight level 360, so 36,000 feet. So they have descended a whole 1,200 feet at this point the 747. Over the next few seconds, some issues occurred with the TCAS on both aircraft, causing it to stop issuing resolution advisories and eventually only displaying a traffic advisory for the other airplane. Because for some reason, this is kind of, 
They explain this very briefly, and maybe you have more on this. I do not. Okay, it doesn't really matter. The two airplanes were close, and there was an error in the tracking of each airplane by TCAS, where it couldn't figure out where each one was for a moment, and so it actually it was like, okay, hold on. And then after a second or two, it came back and was like, mm, there's still an airplane, and it's still a problem. It couldn't figure out how much of a problem, but it knew it was a problem. 3.55 p.m. and 11 seconds. Japan Airlines Flight 907 and Japan Airlines Flight 958 crossed by one another. At that time, Japan Airlines Flight 907 was at flight level 353 or 35,300 feet. So suddenly they are way down there. At a max speed of 299 knots with a 5.5 degree pitch nose down. So they're still pretty pitched down. Moving fast, but all the way down at 35,300 feet. Japan Airlines Flight 958, meanwhile, was at flight level 356 and descending. So 35,600 feet. Per the flight levels, this shows them about 300 feet apart. We'll talk a lot more about that later on. Four seconds later, the TCAS began indicating clear of conflict. The airplanes had passed. Three seconds after that, Japan Airlines Flight 907 reached flight level 348. They got all the way down to 34,800 feet. When the nose pitch angle finally changed to positive, or they came back to nose level, basically, and were starting to pitch nose up for a climb. 3.55 p.m. and 21 seconds. A radio call was made to the radar controller, later identified as Japan Airlines Flight 958, but at the time they didn't use their call sign, stating that a TCAS resolution advisory had been issued to descend, but they would now begin to climb again. So they were saying, like, here's the situation we just went through, but now we're climbing back to 37,000 feet. <laughs> they began climbing just five seconds later from flight level 353, so they went all the way down to 35,300 feet as well. 3.55 p.m. and 29 seconds, the air traffic controller supervisor replied, quote, Japan Air Niner 08 Roger. You might see how that was a problem because that is, again, That's also not, not a flight number of, yep, this, of either of the flights that this, they're talking to. Right. Did not correspond to either flight number or any flight number within their control area at the time. 3.55 p.m. and 32 seconds, Japan Airlines Flight 907 notified air traffic controllers that it was clear of the traffic, and the air traffic controller supervisor acknowledged this. So they were also stating, like, hey, this isn't a problem anymore, just so you know. The autopilot and autothrottle of Japan Airlines Flight 907 were then reactivated, after which the crew notified the air traffic controller that a near-mid-air collision had occurred with a DC-10. Moments later, Japan Airlines Flight 907 requested to return to Haneda, as they had injuries on board. They had sent the first officer, the actual first officer, who was seated in the jump seat, back to the cabin after they had gotten a call from the purser saying, hey, there are injuries back here. They sent the first officer back, and he inspected injuries and such, came back to the cabin just moments later and was like, yeah, no, really, <laughs> we need to go back. Meanwhile, Japan Airlines Flight 958 also reactivated their autopilot and autothrottle and continued their flight normally, landing at Narita at 4.32 p.m. local time. Japan Airlines Flight 907 landed back at Haneda at 4.44 p.m. on runway 34 left, local time. So, Japan Airlines 907 managed to make it back to Haneda a little after 958 landed at Narita. Upon arrival, there were no injuries reported on Japan Airlines Flight 958 at Narita. However, the same could not be said for Flight 907. Upon arrival at Haneda, 100 injuries were reported on Japan Airlines Flight 907, including Jesus. nine serious, which were two cabin crew and seven passengers. The other 91 were minor injuries, which were 10 cabin crew and 81 passengers. 
This was because drink service had just begun. Oh, no. Yep. And people were up and in the aisles when the hard pitch over occurred and the evasive maneuver to avoid the collision. This included a drink cart becoming lodged in the ceiling of the aircraft. All of these injuries occurred because people were either not strapped in their seat because they had taken their seatbelt off or were standing and all of them had struck the ceiling. To give you an idea of just how much 10.8 degrees actually matters. Isn't it a little weird that they're still on ascent and everyone's standing up, walking around? No. Usually most aircraft, actually most airliners, even these days, will turn the seatbelt sign off somewhere in the middle of ascent. Because once you're above a certain point, everything's just pretty much smooth all the way to the rest of the climb. And so even these days, they'll turn it off when you pass usually between 15 and 20,000 feet on the way up. Because by this point, you're about 10 minutes past takeoff. Nothing's really happening. I feel like, though, every time that we are on a plane, for Mm -hmm. the drink service to happen, it's at least 20 minutes to 30 minutes in, Mm -hmm. depending on the flight, of course. Well, what you don't realize is most climbs take about 30 minutes. So on most airliners these days, any minute at the time. So that 30 minutes, toward the end of that 30 minutes, it's a very, very gradual climb. And you don't usually, you can't tell. Oh, yeah. It feels like cruise flight. But if this was about 10 minutes after... They took off. This was know. more than that. Oh. Yeah. They were already up at 30 some odd thousand feet. I mean, when this happened. So they were actually, this was, I think they said it was about 20 minutes after takeoff for the 747. So it had managed to climb pretty crazy quick, but. And it was just at the beginning of drink service. Yeah. They had only been up for, they actually said that there was some turbulence about 10 minutes after takeoff. So they delayed getting up until 15 minutes after takeoff to start drink service. And then they'd only been doing it for about five minutes. So it's about 20 minutes after takeoff when all this happened. Some minor damage was reported to have occurred on Japan Airlines Flight 907 in the cabin, but no damage to the airframe, pressure vessel, or critical systems was reported. Therefore, the aircraft was repaired and re-entered its service. Meanwhile, Japan Airlines Flight 958 suffered no damage after the incident. Some of the passengers were still a little shaken up on 958, even though many of them didn't know what actually happened. Some of them saw it. Some of them saw it. But many of them didn't. Most of it was just they had, they also still had a little bit of an evasive maneuver, but it wasn't anywhere near what the 747 did. Well, and I'm a little confused because didn't the 747 say they saw the DC-10? They did. Yep. They had it in sight the whole time. So, I, I don't know. It, it just... It's how they managed to pass under the DC-10 and actually avoid them is because they were able to do the evasive maneuver because they had them in sight for 40 miles. They saw the airplane 40 miles away. I feel like, though, by the time that they would have tipped over to descend, mm-hmm. they sh- it didn't really make sense because they were already out of the way. The thing is, is when you're watching, right, and you're right, but when you're seeing airplanes from 40 miles away... It is so hard to tell trajectory. And, well, yeah, and even and, a mile and I, away... I agree, yes. Even a mile away, it's hard to tell who's above who and which direction they're going. So you might have noticed that there are two extreme evasive maneuvers. So when the Flight 907 dipped steeper and when 958 began climbing, that happened at almost exactly the same time because that's when the two crews were able to determine this is what needs to happen so we don't hit each other. Yep. And pretty much simultaneously in the cockpit, at least per the statements, I read all the statements. I did not include most of them in here because... God, that was insane. I can't even tell you how insane the history of flight was for this. But within the statements, several of the flight crew members in the cockpit, both of the first officers who have actually talked about, not the third one, stated that both of them out loud said, he's descending when they realized about seconds from disaster that the DC-10 was pointed downward. 
because that was about how close they could tell. I mean, it was literally, they said it was within five seconds of basically of the collision. And a collision. large a large portion of the analysis was spent saying, you cannot visually tell what another aircraft is doing in those circumstances. Right. You have to rely on instruments. And Be- I did not go through that part because it was a lot. Because much like I've said before, with an airliner that's traveling that fast at cruising altitude, you can go basically to wings level to descend. So... The DC-10, and we'll talk about this too, but they used their spoilers at one point, thinking that they had to descend faster, and they didn't really pitch over very far, because the spoilers were doing most of the work, so from below, the 747 couldn't tell how quickly that DC-10 was coming down, and thankfully they missed. By two crew members' accounts, about 10 meters is what they claim. It's not that close. It's not quite that close. In the (laughs) DC-10, the first officer, who again was in the left seat, Claims that basically once the 747 was out of sight, he thought they were going to hit for sure. He thought they were going to hit their tail because they were that close. And he waited for a few moments and was like, when he didn't feel anything, didn't hear anything, he was like, okay, we missed. We're good. Then he reported to air traffic controllers. The 747 reported having them in the left windshield all the way till they filled the whole thing, which is not small. I might add, that is way too close for comfort. I don't remember if it said right or left. Hold on. Pretty sure it said right. It might. One whole side of the windshield. Yeah, one whole windshield was basically filled by the DC-10. So, okay, and the other thing, this has actually nothing to do with this, but Uberlingen, because we just talked about Uberlingen Mm -hmm. a year and a half after. Mm -hmm. If this happened and they Mm -hmm. figured out that, you know, maybe we should listen to TCAS and and not you know when it when TCAS has said an advisory and HEC says the opposite maybe we should follow TCAS and then it surprises me that like to be fair I realize that reports take time reports take time well that that was a year and a half after to be fair yes and so they probably had time to do an advisory even if they weren't done but also that one of the crews was Russian and the other was not on Uberlingen is a factor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which, if you haven't listened to the Uberlingen episode, highly suggest you do so. Right. I was just going to is... say, it just surprises me that this was such a near miss, and it was almost exactly the same thing that happened. And this was almost the worst disaster in aviation history. Because I don't know if you caught that. But there was a lot of people on there board. There were well yeah. over 600 people, which outdoes any number yeah. <laughs> of people. Of accidents. <coughs> in accidents in aviation. <coughs> so, you're right. And absolutely, we will get to that later on, because absolutely that came up in the recommendations in not a small way. And there's a few points of discussion there. With Uberlingen in particular, you are right, the Russian crew thing had something to do with it because of the way that they respect authority. Yes. Coming from air traffic control. Which we talked about in the Uberlingen episode. It is worth noting that this report was published in July of 2002. Uberlingen happened on July 1st, 2002. So, they didn't have a lot of time to react to that. Well, (laughs) if any, because I don't know what day in July of 2002 this came out. For one. And for two, this still wasn't known very well around the world. Like, this incident happened, of course. And I might add that a lot of other things happened between when this accident happened and when the report released that were far more important to the world than you this. might have noticed this happened in january of 2001 right and the report didn't come out until july of 2002 you know what happened know. in between <laughs> so yeah, i'm well the thing is, is like even even if you know i realized that the 
they didn't have a lot of time for the report, right? And stuff happened in between, yeah. This didn't become, like, top of mind for the ICAO until Uberlingen, unfortunately. I'm reading from the Wikipedia page for this incident, which is entitled the 2001 Japan Airlines Midair Incident. Uh-huh. That the ICAO accepted the recommendations from this report in 2003. Okay. Well, I don't know. It was just, it surprised me that this, like I said, this is almost exactly uh-huh. what happened on Uberlingen. And yep. if they had, I don't know, said something, not even, I'm not saying that they had to have the report out and everyone had to read the report and the ICAO. I'm just saying that the investigators could have been like, hey, they did. Just so you're aware, this happened. Yeah. So, well, so they let, did. We'll get there. Let's, let's get into the report, shall we? This Dude. investigation was performed by the Aircraft and Railway Accidents Investigation Commission. I That's don't speak a English. Thing. Both black boxes were successfully recovered from both aircraft. Duh. Yep. Yeah, they had they, both airplanes. They didn't crash. Thankfully, nobody died. This and was... the data was able to be recovered. However, because more than 30 minutes had passed between the incident and the shutting down of the engines, neither CVR could be used. Damn. Which makes sense, unfortunately. Yep. It's a little unfortunate because, to be honest, this is one of those incidents where I feel like that would have been way more paramount than yeah. even a flight data recorder. Yeah. Understanding exactly what happened in the cockpit and what was discussed, other than just statements, because they have statements, but it would have been so much more useful. Yeah. This is one of those instances where I feel like the cockpit voice recorder, really important. Yes. (laughs) But the flight data recorders were able to be used. Flight 907 recorded 306 parameters. You might have noticed how many things I had, how many points of data I had. And flight 958 had 129. However, I will use that word a lot. However, neither flight data recorder records TCAS data. So this data had to be pulled from the 747's Aircraft Condition Monitoring System, or ACMS, and the DC-10's Aircraft Integrated Data System, or AIDS. That's an unfortunate acronym. Yes, it is. (laughs) I don't use it again. Yep. Further complicating matters. Yay! The flight data recorder for the DC-10 pulls the pressure altitude data from the first officer's side, but the captain's side feeds the TCAS and air traffic control. Good times. This was another circumstance where the... Sorry, I did use it one more time. This was another circumstance where the aids had to be used as it also records the captain's side altimeter. The first part of the analysis was taking the information from the black boxes and all those systems I just mentioned, as well as air traffic control communication and radar records, in addition to statements from flight crews, cabin crews, and air traffic control to recreate the story. This took forever. Yes, it did. This is part of why the report took so long to come out. So, let's set the scene again. Flight 907 took off from Haneda, basically, and was climbing to flight level 390 as instructed. Flight 958 was heading towards Narita, cruising at flight level 370. There were three air traffic controllers on duty at the Kanto South Sea sector of Tokyo Air Control Center. That is the full name, by the way. One of which was undergoing an on-the-job training to familiarize with that sector along with the air traffic control watch supervisor and a coordinator. I should probably clarify a little bit that this sector we're talking about is straight south of Tokyo, out over the sea. It's close enough to Tokyo to matter because there's so many airplanes around there, and this is well within Tokyo's area, but the whole thing we're talking about, this whole thing happened over the Pacific Ocean. Not very far. They were seven miles off of the... I mean, if you know anything about Tokyo or Japan in general, Mm -hmm. it's a very small country. It's very close to water. It doesn't surprise me that they'd be over ocean. Yep. At 3.48, Flight 958 made contact with air traffic control. Meanwhile, the American Airlines flight was cruising at the same flight level as was assigned to Flight 907, and the planned flight path crossed paths with 907. That was really confusing. (laughs) Yes. Recognizing this danger, the trainee air traffic controller contacted the American Airlines flight twice. 
but they did not respond because they had not yet established communication. They were still on the radio with Sector B. Yep. That's why they didn't respond, which makes sense. Yep, that's why they didn't respond to the whole change of altitude thing. A minute later, they were handed off to Sector C, at which time the trainee instructed them to descend to flight level 350. Crisis averted, right? So, okay, wait a minute. As a question, Mm -hmm. and maybe you don't have the answer, but instead of having that flight go down, why not just have flight 907 go to 35,000 and then when traffic's clear, have them go up to You are 30, right. Nine. This was not discussed. This was not discussed, <laughs> but I agree with this. I feel like, to be so, fair, he was training, right? And so, Or they. I don't know if it was a she. It was a he. Was it a was he? a okay. he. The supervisor was a she. Yes. The supervisor was so, a she. If you want their names, the trainee was Hideki Hachitani and mm-hmm. the supervisor was Yasuko Momi. I just feel like that would have been like just, the one I, thing that caused I'm, none of this to happen. I'm so, not even going to talk about I it. I completely agree with you. And actually, <laughs> when you heard what I told you in the story, you can kind of hear this trainee's train of thought because they said they told 907 to level off at 35,000 instead yeah. of 39 and then reversed that and said to climb to 39,000 not even a minute later. And then told American Airlines to descend instead. And the whole reason for that is because one's on its way to its cruising altitude and the other one has to descend soon anyways. So they were kind of figuring, why not just send Dude, one I on to descent? I don't know. Dude, yes. don't it look at me. It would have been just easier if they were like, just like level off. They'll go over you. Everything will be fine. Then you can go back up. You I agree I mean? because I this also probably would have had flight 907 at 35,000 feet when it crossed paths with 958. PEMDAS. Yep. Does. <laughs> Order give, of operations. I give, I give a lot of lessons in this analysis. That is not that one is of not them. one of them. <laughs> so at 3:53, Flight 907 began a slow left turn near Yaizu City, at which time the conflict warning warned of the close approach between aircraft. But at this point, the air traffic control watch supervisor was giving comments to the trainee about the task performed up to that time. So they weren't really paying attention. Three seconds later, the traffic advisory alert indicated on the TCAS display of Flight 958 advising it of Flight 907. One second later, 907 got the same warning. Between 3.54 and 27 seconds and 3.54 and 32 seconds, air traffic control instructed Flight 907 to descend to flight level 350 immediately. But he had mixed them up. He had actually intended to tell 958 that, not 907. This is the big key thing. This is the big key thing that I didn't throw in there for a reason. So... That was in the statement from the air traffic controller, is they intended to give that instruction to 958 and gave it to 907 instead. Okay. The descent. This is why you don't have flights that have such similar flight numbers going at the similar altitudes and along with a bunch of other that's going on that, no. Also happening in that area was this ATC was handling 14 flights at the time. Good God. Yeah. Okay. So let's keep going. Immediately afterwards, the traffic advisory became a resolution advisory and flight 958 was commanded by TCAS to descend. While flight 907 had already begun operations to descend, they just received the RA to ascend. I hate everything. Air traffic control instructed flight 958 to turn to heading 130, but they did not respond. Was there a reason for that? I will get to that much later. Okay. Then Flight 907 reached the top of its climb and began descending. Flight 958's TCash issued an increase RA, meaning increase the rate of descent, but the display was showing a downward arrow next to Flight 907, meaning they were also descending. So they could actually see the intended track of both aircraft on the TCAS on their screens. It shows as an arrow next to their flight. Yeah, I think we talked about that on 
Uberlingen. Mm-hmm. Yep. But the air traffic control trainee gave control to the watch supervisor who tried to reach out to flight 958 to descend, but she accidentally said 957 instead. So no one responded. She also said 908 later, which yeah. I'm like, what's going on? There? Oh, chaos. <laughs> the two flights descended to almost the same altitude, approaching each other. The air traffic control watch supervisor instructed 907 to climb in correspondence with the TCAS RA, but received no response. Flight 907's TCAS told them to increase their rate of climb, and they continued to descend. Seeing the impending collision, 958 pulled up just before crossing paths, and they ceased descending. So they accelerated upward, but did not actually go Go up. Yes. Correct. They just leveled off. Yep. Some of you might see where one of my lessons might be coming in soon. They were actually still descending even when they pulled up. They just descended less. Less. (laughs) Slower. Which is a positive acceleration. Yes. Can anyone see the calculus lesson pending? Here it comes. At this time, Flight 907 pitched down further and then pulled up. So its vertical acceleration varied wildly between positive and negative. Mm -hmm. Rather negative than positive. So occupants and objects were tossed and fell, resulting in injuries and ceiling panel damage. Flight 958 did not experience the same change in acceleration, aka jerk, which is the technical term for the third derivation of Position. So, quick calculus lesson. The change in position over time is the first derivation of position. This is velocity. You know, you go so many miles over so much time. That's velocity. Yep. Distance over time. Yes. The change in velocity over time is the first derivation of velocity and the second derivation of position. This is acceleration. So, as you change speed over time. That's the extent that most people know in their vocabulary. You know what velocity is. You know what acceleration is. Great. But the third derivation of position, or the change in acceleration over time, is jerk. It usually doesn't have that much meaning, but I think the occupants would argue otherwise. Yep. Since they were jerked. Yep. Hashtag inertia. Yes. So, there's lesson number one of the day. Flight 907 relayed to air traffic control that the collision had been averted and requested to return to Haneda due to injuries and they were cleared to do so. Blah, blah, blah. You talked about a lot of this. Yes, I did. So, how did this happen? You might wonder. Well, you see, people f***ed up. That's how that happened. Pretty much. And a lot of people did. So, how had the system... The aviation system. (laughs) The overall... (laughs) How did the world allow this to happen? Fight the system. Actually, don't. The system didn't work here, but it's supposed to. How did the system allow for such a potentially devastating disaster to come that close? In looking at what transpired prior, investigators found that the American Airlines flight was not even supposed to be flying through Sector C. Dude! Oh my god! Well, there's... But... They were instructed to do so by Sector B controllers, taking the flight north of its planned route and into Sector C. Why, you might ask? Well, their planned flight route had taken them through the path of volcanic emissions from Mount Oyama on Miyake Island, or Miyake-jima, which had been evacuated in July of 2000. And residents weren't allowed to return until February of 2005. Because it was erupting the whole time. Oh, well, if you remember what happens when a plane flies through a volcanic ash. It's not ash, good. It's not good. <laughs> uh, the engines stop working. Yes. So, yes, that is an acceptable reason that to have them out. deviate. Yes. Yep. So, if you need to know more about that, refer to episode 72, because I actually went and looked at what that was. Oh, good. At least you know which one it was. It was almost 100 episodes ago. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Good God. So, no, they were not supposed to fly through Sector C. But, like, they can't fly through where they were going to fly through, so... The subsequent collision aversion procedures took up a chunk of the concentration for the controller trainee, but 
he was successful in averting that one. The handoff of Flight 958 was successful when the controller trainee correctly manually notated as such, and investigators noted that controllers can handle a few tens of aircraft simultaneously, but they cannot foresee conflict at this stage of handling. They can't see conflict at handoff. But if they don't have time later to re-examine the possibility of conflict, they may pay less attention to aircraft that they previously judged as having no conflict. Right. Well, yeah, it's like confirmation bias. Yes. Very similar. It's not quite, but very similar to confirmation bias. At the time of the handoff, Flight 958 was at Flight Level 370, and Flight 907 was climbing to Flight Level 230. So no conflict. Yet. 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 Now we have to really get in the head of the controller trainee. When a radar handoff is done, the controller confirms the flight route and destination of the aircraft that they are receiving from another controller, and they quote-unquote fix it in their head and compare it to other fixes in their consciousness. I am not going to even try to understand how air traffic controllers are trained. Y'all are crazy. True. Further radio calls reinforce that fix in their head and the controller's awareness of the aircraft. But this process was not completed for Flight 958. The controller trainee did not confirm the position or other details of the flight, so its presence was not fixed in his memory. During the handoff, he had updated its flight strip according to the handoff and established radio communications, but he had also just instructed Flight 907 to climb to Flight Level 390, the same flight level as Flight 157, and had the pressing need to establish radio communication with Flight 157 to have it descend, but incorrectly did so as he instructed a descent before communication was established, so they didn't hear the instruction at first. Flight 157 was instructed to descend and eventually did so once properly handed off from Sector B. All the while, he lost the poorly established fix in his head of Flight 958 and forgot it existed. It sounds like ADHD. Yeah, right? (laughs) I mean, if that job doesn't give you ADHD, I don't know what does. (laughs) I mean, that's just nuts, having to deal with all of that in your brain. To exacerbate matters. Mm Mm-hmm. There was a Japan Airlines Flight 952. Do you notice how close that is to 958? Dude, you know? I can't even. They, he, he, I was like, <laughs> we have a 907, we have a 95, we have a 952. Listen, what's with all the nines? Right. Listen, Linda, maybe. So, <laughs> it had transferred to Narita Approach just before 958 entered Sector C, but I mean, that's, that's still, ugh. That's not great. It's not great. Investigators calculated a total of 10 radio communications made and received in one minute just by the trainee. That's ADHD. Yep. Not really. I know what ADHD is. I have it. Don't come for me. But it does. Woo. That's a lot. But there were several five to 10 minute periods of no communications. And although the trainee was indeed being trained for Sector C, he wasn't a rookie. He was already fully qualified to control the West Kanto sector. So investigators knew that he was capable of controlling in an intense controlling period. It was not beyond his capability, especially given that they had low comms periods where he could have caught up on his mental fixes. But what was happening? He was talking with the watch supervisor. Yep. But wait, shouldn't have the watch supervisor also been aware of Flight 958? Listen, she was busy coordinating with Sector B, still, regarding the American Airlines flight, and she was speaking to them directly, not using a phone line, and it was during this time that Flight 958 established contact with the trainee controller. Sure, she knew that 958 was supposed to be entering their sector at some point, since, you know, they plan for that stuff throughout the day, but she wasn't physically there when radio communication was established, so she forgot about it too. I feel like that's a really poor, like, 
supervisor training situation. Uh-huh. Because if you're talking about someone who is quote-unquote a rookie, right? And if, okay, maybe he's not 100% a rookie, but... He's a rookie in this airspace. Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, when you're not familiar with an airspace, you are already focusing on the fact that you had conflicting traffic to begin with. And then the person who's supposed to be helping you is not currently there to help you. She's trying to help with the first conflict. So... They used this in-between time with no comms to talk about the situation in terms of training, though the analysis didn't go into much detail with what they actually discussed, and they did not use this time to continue being on the lookout for conflict, and both at this point had forgotten about Flight 958. It is worth noting that there are not standards or procedures regarding what is the right and wrong time while giving explanations to trainee controllers and what is the best time for that. So they weren't wrong in doing this. Well, no, but she, she it's should not have, great. She should have been there when 958 arrived into their airspace. Suddenly, the conflict alert went off, reigniting the awareness of Flight 958 and its approach to Flight 907. Now, normally, the conflict alert should go off three minutes before the aircraft are within five nautical miles of each other. So you got three minutes and then they have five miles after that. But this didn't happen. This was a big thing, actually. Because Flight 907 made that left turn just before Yaizu City, it changed their flight path from non-conflict to conflicting. So the conflict alert came up 30 seconds before the five nautical mile separation point. That's what I was going to say. I Because none of you can see me because I realize we don't have video. But Nick was reading the part about yeah, the turning. Yeah, you were like, like shaking. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, you were Everything shaking. Everything would have been fine if you just didn't turn. They were scheduled to turn. So like they were can't... scheduled to turn. It's part of their flight plan. And the problem with that is that the conflict alert on the radar for the radar controller couldn't detect conflicting aircraft until the turn was made. Correct. So it didn't assume that the airplane was going to make a turn at any point in time. It basically thought, okay, on the current path, they're not going to conflict. On the current path, they're not going to conflict. On but the current path, oh, crap. But once one was in a turn and then finally it was conflicting, then the conflict alert was like, oh, yeah, there's a problem. <laughs> and unfortunately, Sorry. that did not give air traffic control much time. Not enough. So this would have been very psychologically unsettling to the trainee controller as it would have be very difficult to maintain the required separation of five lateral nautical miles and 2,000 vertical feet. You got 30 seconds to do that. Yeah, it's not It's not good. Enough. It took him seven seconds to reach out to Flight 907, which was deemed reasonable, given that investigators calculate it would have taken him four to five seconds to judge the relative altitude and positions between the two aircraft in their heading. So seven seconds to reach out is good. Yes. He reacted correctly. But being unsettled led to more mistakes. He thought he had instructed Flight 958 to descend to Flight Level 350, but had actually told Flight 907 to do so. The watch supervisor was also taken off guard and didn't notice this mistake, and neither of them realized it either when Flight 907 acknowledged the instruction. So they had multiple points at which they could have acknowledged the mistake. Yes. And, I mean, when you have multiple points that you could have acknowledged the mistake, and also having two people there to listen to the discussion, I feel like one of them should have been like, hey, did you mean such and such flight and not, you know, this 907? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it wasn't caught by other one of them, which is the thing that caught me a little off guard. And this coordinator, which I'm not really sure what their job was. I don't know if they were listening to any of this, but I feel yeah. like that 
should have been. Well, I feel like too, and I was going to say this while you were telling the story, but at this point there probably is some sort of sense of panic, right? Like, Oh yeah, for sure. Oh my God. Like they're going to hit each other. And so probably just reaching out to a flight in general to try to get them to not hit each other was probably the goal. Yeah. And unfortunately they did it with the wrong flight, but yeah, they tried. Investigators determined that the best course of action, given where the trainee was in his training, would have been for the watch supervisor to take over aircraft instructions given the impending conflict. Immediately after, the controller instructed Flight 958 to turn as well, thinking that the descent instruction would not be enough to avoid collision. You know, he didn't actually instruct them to descend. Right. He thought he did. (laughs) Yeah. But part of this transmission was actually lost as Flight 907 had left their mic on for one to two seconds after acknowledging the descent instruction. Whoops. This actually only cut out the call sign, so saying Japan Airlines. So the 958 part and the turn was was still heard. Still heard, yeah. The trainee was not aware that a resolution advisory had been issued at this point and he had no way of knowing that it had. But 958 did not respond to the instructions to turn. Either the first one to turn to heading 130 or to turn to heading 140 later. The lack of response meant to ATC that turning to maintain separation was no longer an option. 40 seconds after the conflict alert was issued, the watch supervisor finally took control. I feel like that should have happened sooner. Yeah. I do feel like that should have happened sooner. And I thought that when I was reading the whole story, I was like, why why are you stepping in now? Like, this took a little too long. Yeah. And she told Flight 957 to descend. Right. Who's that? Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't that, exist. No. <laughs> I read two different things about the next sentence I'm going to say. I read something later that contradicted this, so take this with a grain of salt. Investigators determined that she had mixed up the last digit of flight 907 and used that instead of an 8 at the end of 958, making it 957. She then instructed 907 to climb while both were shown on the display as already descending and her instructions matched the resolution advisor. I saw the conflicting things you saw. Which is why I just wrote, this is, we didn't know who they were talking to. I don't know who she meant. No one does at this point. Right. So let's transition to the cockpit of Flight 907. They received the instruction to descend while making a climbing left turn. So they disengaged the autopilot because its actions would be too slow. And they leveled out the turn manually, resulting in a heading of 207 instead of their planned for heading of 218. But because their heading was changing during the leveling out of the turn still, it was difficult to tell that they were on a collision course until they had completed the rollout and come to a constant heading. During the turn, they received the traffic alert visually and audibly four seconds before ATC received their conflict alert. In interviews, the crew said that they got the traffic advisory after being told to descend, but analysis of the TCAS, FDR, and ATC comms showed that they had received the traffic advisory, then the instruction to descend. They acknowledged the instruction to descend and that traffic was in sight, and at the same time they received a resolution advisory or RA instructing them to climb, climb, climb. The throttles had already been pulled back, disengaging the auto throttle as well, giving the captain full command of the aircraft, though the aircraft was still climbing because inertia exists. Yep. It takes time to get out of climb and descend. At this point they are at 37,200 feet, 200 feet above flight 958, and simulations show that they could have reversed their attempt to descend and to continue to climb without stalling or buffeting. I will get to that in a minute. Okay. But they did begin descending during the turn, which reached a maximum bank of 33.9 degrees. When interviewed, the captain gave the following reasons for continuing to descend contrary to the RA. One, he received the air traffic control instruction before the RA. True. Yes. 
factually true. Yep. It's agreed that he had a very short period of time to make the decision, and it would be psychologically difficult to change actions that had already been started. Two, he figured that air traffic control gave that instruction, already taking into account Flight 958 and any other relevant flights in the area, since they had more authority on that matter. I can understand Doesn't that. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yep. He had visual contact with Flight 958 and was aware of it on his TCAS display. However, it is visually impossible for pilots to precisely discern relative position at high speed and high altitude until they are way too close for comfort. Yep. Visual contact is not sufficient to make evasive maneuver decisions. 4. At the time of the TA, they were at a lower altitude than Flight 958. Yes, this was true at the time of instruction to descend, but because they continued to climb for a small while, they eventually ended up higher than Flight 958. Yes. 5. It takes longer for engines to spool up to climb than to spool down for descent. Especially at that high of an altitude. I will get to this. Okay. Six, aircraft are more likely to stall at high altitudes, making the choice to climb as an evasive maneuver seem like a poor choice. Give me a minute. Seven, careless pitch-up maneuvers at high airspeed may lead to buffeting. Give me a minute. These three points required flight simulations to prove one way or the other. The flight simulation showed that had the crew reacted to the RA and climbed, they would have reached 37,800 feet at the time of the closest point of approach. Yes, it would have taken 20 seconds to go from idle thrust to climb thrust, 10 seconds for N1 to recover from 70 to 80% to climb thrust, but they would have been safely out of the way given that Flight 958 descended in compliance with the RA. But investigators also acknowledged that the captain had not experienced a situation in which the thrust levers had to be rapidly advanced from idle to climb at a high altitude, and training didn't cover this matter either, so he had reason to be concerned. As far as the concern for stalling, the calculated stall speed given the conditions, weight, all that jazz, would have been 215 knots. And the speed when it was descending at the time of the accident was 280 knots. So they had a small margin of speed and could have sacrificed some of the speed for altitude. Literally convert that margin of speed from kinetic energy into potential energy. Anyone see the lesson coming? Yep. Here's a physics lesson. It's worth noting that investigators literally did this exact calculation of the report and I'm not just pulling numbers out of my... How much altitude could they have gained with that extra speed they had? Well, total energy is constant. You cannot create or destroy energy. Basic foundation. And their energy can be expressed as kinetic energy plus potential energy. Kinetic energy is mass times velocity squared divided by 2. Potential energy is mass times acceleration of gravity times height. So mv1 squared over 2 plus mgh1 equals mv2 squared over 2 plus MGH2, where V1 was converted from computed airspeed to 253 meters per second true airspeed, and V2 was selected as 1.2 times stall speed, just, you know, for that little bit of comfort, not going all the way to stall speed. And this was converted to 236 meters per second true airspeed. Acceleration of gravity is... Anyone... Oh, you would hit me with this right now oh, while I don't dude, remember. I haven't, I haven't like heard this number since I was in physics in high school. It is 9.8 meters per second squared. Squared, yeah. And the initial height was 37,000 feet, or 11,300 meters. Plug in all that math. Oh, also, mass can be canceled out because it is in every value of that equation. And some basic algebra results in an altitude gain of 424 meters, or 1,390 feet. Would have been enough. That that would have been a nice little bit of margin there. More than enough. And they could have done that without stalling. It is also worth noting that the RA is issued after the system calculates what would be safest for each aircraft given their current flight path. The ICAO convention says that the typical vertical rate needed to avoid collision is 1,500 feet per minute based on a pilot response of 5 seconds and a vertical acceleration of 0.25 Gs. 
So it's not like they just pulled a number out of nowhere. The system will not command you to do something that will cause buffeting or stalling because it must operate inside these parameters at least until you get an increase RA. And I didn't talk about this, but part of why so many people were quite literally I'm not there yet. On the DC-10. Did you talk about the DC-10? Yes. Okay. Give me a minute. Okay. Then we'll leave that be. So, in design, theory, and flight simulators, investigators determined that Flight 907 could have successfully evaded the situation had the captain just complied with the RA. Mm-hmm. Or literally just kept, like... Going. Excel- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, kept climbing. Because they, they were, were already out of the way by the time that they were ready to descend. Yep. So I gave seven reasons earlier that he didn't comply with the RA. There is an eighth one, though it was not given by the captain, but rather by the investigators themselves. He did not sufficiently recognize the importance of complying with an RA and the risks that come with not doing so. This very much sounds like a training issue, but Japan Airlines crews, including the crew in question, were very much trained that they can deviate from air traffic control instruction and must obey the resolution advisory. However... The training did not present the specific scenario in which ATC and the RA directly contradict each other. Isn't that the point of I, the training, though? Like, yes. So, listen, at this point, right, Uberlingen hasn't happened yet. Nope. Right. There aren't, I'm sure there were accidents, like we just talked about an accident a few weeks ago about, you know, them hitting each other from mm-hmm. ascending and descending, right? Mm-hmm. But it's almost like, it hasn't really happened, so it's like, we're fine. Yeah. Furthermore, the caution, quote, any change in vertical speed that does not comply with the RA may negate the effectiveness of the other aircraft's compliance with the RA, end quote, was in the airplane flight manual, but it was not in the aircraft operation manual, which is what the flight crews, you know, actually read. Right. Often. Even furthermore, the operation manual supplement says, quote, when the RA is issued, immediately comply with the RA unless the captain considers it unsafe to do so. And the captain testifies that he did not believe it was good to do so. I hate that phrase so much. Investigators went on to consider that the other flight crew member should have at least, I don't know, tried to convince them to comply with the RA. Right. Especially. But they were so small hours, though, on that flight. They were very Compared (laughs) to him, like, the most that they had other than him was a little over 500 hours. I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course they didn't say anything. You're right. Thank you for covering most of my paragraph. (laughs) You're You're right. The trainee pilot sitting in the right seat did not advise the captain because he was strictly looking out the window at flight 958. Oh, my God. (laughs) And, you know, the flight hour difference might have been a factor. Yep. Well, shouldn't the pilot not flying be cross-checking the TCAS display? Turns out, Japan Airlines crew resource management training did not focus on TCAS operation. That's a whole thing. <sighs> I'm not done. I know. At 3.55.05, oh so 3.55 in five seconds, the captain engaged in a further pitch-down maneuver, resulting in a vertical acceleration of negative 0.55 Gs and a nose-down angle of 10.8 degrees, and this action was quickly followed by an increased climb RA. The captain reported he had done this because it was apparent that they were still on a collision course, and slow evasive maneuvers would not have avoided a collision. The rate of descent reached about 13,000 feet per minute, which had to be calculated because it actually exceeded the descent rate capable of being recorded on the FDR. Yep. Three seconds after the action of pitching down, the nose pitch changed from 10.8 degrees to 7 degrees, and the vertical acceleration reached positive 1.33 Gs. Right. And to me, this seems like this should overstress the airplane 
but it didn't. No, but that is a change in, what is that, 1.8 Gs in three seconds. Yep. That's a lot of Gs. That's a lot of Gs. That's a lot of jerk. Yeah, it is. And this is what investigators determined caused the majority of the injuries. It wasn't that everybody being lifted into the ceiling with the galley carts, and it was everyone slamming back down on the ground. I mean, yeah. Yep. It's kind of like the vomit comet. Yeah. You know, if- uh, except if the vomit comet, you weren't. <laughs> you, you weren't extendedly in the air for a period of time. You just slammed back down on the floor. So every single statement they had from a cabin crew member had them saying, yeah, I was pushing down on the cart as hard as I could to make sure that it didn't lift from the floor. But then I did, too. Uh, yeah. And, and then I was also in the air. And half of them were like, and then my cart fell over onto people mm-hmm. as it came back down. Some of them reported their feet were as high as people's heads when they were sitting down when they floated up. Because mind you, these are pretty tall cabins. And then some of them reported coming right back down onto their feet with the cart. <laughs> <laughs> Upright. And that's pretty lucky. Considering that a cart was embedded in the ceiling? Yeah. 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 So I don't actually have this written down anywhere, but most of the injuries were neck injuries. Yep. As I would think they would be. And I was very confused by this at first. So the way this was written, this was originally written in Japanese, as you might understand, and it was later translated into English. There was a phrase that someone sprained their cervix. Ow. What? (laughs) It meant to say like their cervical vertebrae. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a different thing. That's two very... They're in different parts of the body. Not even close to each other. I'm like, how do you spring? <laughs> right. I'm really confused. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. That's if, like, you hit something really, really hard. I don't even... You can't sprain that anyway. I don't think so. So, anyways. Well, and it was I mean, also you can a, damage it, but... It was also a man. Yeah, so no. No. <laughs> no. That, for sure, no. So... If anyone is really bored and wants to go read the injury section, take it with a grain of salt. Cervix and cervical are two very different things. Yep. I can understand how they ended up with neck injuries. Oh, yeah. I mean, your neck's the one thing that can, like, really flee through. Well, we'll talk a you little know? bit about why. Because you might have noted how many people got injured. All those people weren't standing. They were sitting with their seatbelts unfastened. So what... Do, wh- Wham! Up against the Yeah, ceiling. up against the, the, the luggage. The little control panel? Yeah. Yep, right above their head. Uh, what, what's that called? Customer service panel or some crap like that? Passenger service unit. That. The thing that you can press to make the flight attendants really mad at you. Yeah. Because they don't. That's the one. <laughs> the, I don't think I've ever seen someone actually press one of those on a flight. I don't I have. I have. Is but that? yes, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Now imagine that your head is in very close proximity with that. You mean smashing close in? by smashing into it. <laughs> yeah. Smashing into it? Because that's what happened. <laughs> and then slamming back down with potentially your neck hitting your headrest. Right. At a very uh, inconvenient angle. Right off Yeah, that. probably got really bad vertigo and really a lot of neck things. injuries. Really bad neck injuries. Oh, other injuries that are not related to hitting your head on the ceiling. So you might have noticed that there are galley carts out. You know what's on galley carts? Hot coffee. Hot coffee. Yeah. yeah. There were scalding injuries, too. Yeah, since, you know, the liquid came out. Yeah, some people were like, there was liquid dripping from the ceiling the, the entire rest of the flight. Yeah. As, like, all the beverages had also, hit the bro, ceiling. Also, once again, if you're bored and you really want to go into the report, I'm sure Miranda can also pull these pictures, but at the, the all the pictures are at the end of the report, and there are pictures of the galley cart in the ceiling. Because it's not just, like, halfway merged in the ceiling. No, it is. Like, they had to poke out a ceiling tile to go put the camera in the ceiling to take a picture of it. Yeah. And actually, one of the cabin crew had gone 
with the cart up there. And it's they have this statement, actually. They said they traveled upward before the cart fell over into the ceiling. And they, too, were, like, looking in the ceiling of the aircraft before they came back down. Oh. Well, that's not comfortable. Uh-uh. And yet they say minor damage. Like, there, there's... Well, it didn't damage the airframe, which is what I'm assuming they mean by minor damage. Yeah, it didn't damage it anything didn't important. Damage anything that would cause the airplane not to fly. <laughs> right. But it did do some damage to the yeah, cabin. And a duct. Yeah. I don't know what was in the duct. I didn't read that far. It wasn't pertinent. Anyway, flight 958. First question, why the hell didn't they turn to heading 130 when they were told to do so? Anyone? They were busy. <laughs> they said they didn't hear that instruction. Yeah. And here are the reasons why. One, they just received an RA. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they were busy complying with it, which meant that they were discussing things like how low their sink rate was and how much they weren't actually sinking. They disengaged the autopilot, and turns out that's a loud sound. Yeah, because you can hear it from the other side of the cockpit door when it mm -hmm. happens. Yep. Since the air traffic control instruction overlaps slightly with Flight 907's response to a previous instruction, they didn't hear their full call sign, making it potentially difficult to ascertain if the instruction was intended for them or not. Yeah, I mean, not hearing the Japan Airlines part, I guess, would, when you just hear 958 mm -hmm. and you're, like, doing other things, you probably wouldn't even mm -hmm. notice. Yep. Okay, so why didn't you respond the second time? Well, they also said they didn't hear it. Here's why. They were getting an increased descent, RA, at the same time. The captain was extending the spoilers, and the first officer was pushing on the control wheel all the while they were making the relevant callouts. So they were talking, and then the spoilers were causing vibrations, as they do. So there's that. They and, were actually getting full airplane buffeting. And they were focused on a freaking plane flying at them. Yeah. Yep. I can attest to that, you know, when they did the spoiler thing and it was buffeting like crazy. I'm sure that was a bit alarming. Well, yeah, because it's buffeting. <laughs> the whole airplane was shaking like crazy and all this. That's why, that's the whole reason there was actually concern about the passengers when they arrived is because the airplane had gone through a relatively violent buffet at high speed. Yep. As the two aircraft neared each other, the control inputs changed from nose down to nose up right as Flight 907 pushed further down and injured a bunch of people. Both flight crew reported that they could see the top of the 747's fuselage. Not, not, not good. But so I mean, better than... Seeing their eyes. That's true. So that was when they determined, you know, I think we need to pull up. Yep. They might be below us, just maybe I can see the top of the plane. Because of their evasive actions, the maximum value of vertical acceleration was 1.84 Gs, which is not comfortable. Not small. But they never experienced negative Gs. Which and is the whole reason people didn't end up injured. That's how no one ended up in the ceiling. There was buffeting right around the time of closest proximity, and a short time later, the spoilers were retracted as they did not need to descend anymore now that the danger had passed. Yep. Although this evasive action of abruptly pulling up was against the RA, it was judged to be the appropriate action given Flight 907's actions. Yes. Now you may ask, how close did they actually come to one another? This is the complicated part. To answer that, we need geometry. Think of the two planes as close, but there is some vertical and horizontal separation. You know, legs of a triangle, you might say. The hypotenuse of that triangle connecting them is the closest distance. The closest distance between them, that hypotenuse, is as if you held a string between the two and then just measured that string. Like, this is free measurement in space. That was 135 meters plus or minus 30 meters, or 443 feet plus or minus 98 feet. Not a lot. That's not the scary number. 
But you might want to know the vertical separation itself, since some of that 135 meters was horizontal separation, since they weren't on top of one another at the closest point. The vertical separation at the closest point was 40 meters plus or minus 20 meters, or 130 feet plus or minus 70 feet. Ooh, not so part of the saving part of the saving grace here because they're still not exact on how close they were. We don't know. Part of the saving grace was the fact that they didn't pass directly over one another. There was a small bit of lateral lateral separation, so one crossed before the other did. Yeah. Just barely. If you're curious, the source of the error, since I said plus or minus, was the fact that this data came from three completely different systems that didn't align. Right. So there, yeah. there's standard deviation in there. Statistics and stuff that I didn't study, so I'm not giving you a statistics lesson. I think I've done enough lessons, and I am complete in my work today. We're going to take a break. And, break, break! Uh, we'll come back and have all the stuff that we normally talk about. Kind of. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Speaking of the second half, we're back. Welcome back. And this isn't the second half. This is like the second eighth. <laughs> it's real tiny compared the, to the first half. The, the eighth eighth, because this wouldn't be the second eighth. Oh, <laughs> this would be the eighth eighth. This would be the eighth the eighth of the eighth. Oh my I god! Had, yes, math got it. Okay, it's gonna be short. I, I'm mathed out today. That's fair. Okay, so yes, they had findings. No, I'm not doing any of them because there were nine of them, and they were basically recommendations. Of which they also had a recommendation section. So we are skipping the findings. Altogether, okay. Because it didn't matter. We're also not doing all of the recommendations, which we'll get to in a minute, because most of them were very long in summary and to exist. Mostly because I pulled out the important ones, the important parts. But uh, before that, but first, it is considered that the accident was caused as follows. <laughs> I don't even like the way Maybe that started. Maybe this is the finding <laughs> section. I don't like the way that started. A conflict alert was issued at Tokyo Air Control Center. Warning of the proximity of Japan Airlines Flight 907, or Aircraft A. That was also confusing, by the way. Which was making a climbing left turn in Japan Airlines Flight 958, or Aircraft B, which was cruising in level flight. While responding to the conflict alert... Tokyo ACC mistook the flight number of aircraft B for that of aircraft A and instructed aircraft A, which was climbing at the time, to descend. Immediately after aircraft A initiated descent in response to this instruction, its Traffic Alert and Collision Avoidance System, or TCAS, issued a resolution advisory to climb, but aircraft A continued the descent in compliance with the ATC instruction. Both aircraft A and aircraft B, which descended in response to its own TCAS RA, came to abnormal close proximity. Abnormally close proximity is what you mean? That's what they mean. While maintaining mutual visual contact. And just before their closest point of mutual approach, both aircraft made evasive maneuvers to avoid a collision based on visual judgment. Aircraft A made an abrupt descent, intending to pass under aircraft B just before their flight paths crossed, and as a result, passengers and cabin attendants of aircraft A rose from the cabin floor or seats, floated, then dropped and sustained injuries. It is considered that the following causal factors contributed to the accident. That probable cause was ridiculous. Also, they made it sound like there was some kind of nice mutual descent happening, but it was not. <laughs> it was not a 
It was not a mutual descent. I mean, I guess you can put it that way because they were both descending, but that was not the right thing to do. Regarding Tokyo ACC's descent instruction, which was mistakenly issued to Aircraft A instead of Aircraft B, when the conflict alert was issued, the ATC trainee who was controlling the heavily congested traffic of Kanto South Sea Sector and his ATC watch supervisor was psychologically upset by the urgent situation, and the ATC trainee, mistaking the flight numbers, issued an instruction to descend not to Aircraft B as he had intended, but to Aircraft A, and the ATC watch supervisor did not notice this mistaking of flight numbers. When Aircraft A read back the ATC instruction, neither the ATC trainee or ATC watch supervisor noticed that the flight number read back was different from the one intended. Regarding the psychological upset of the ATC trainee and ATC watch supervisor when the conflict alert was issued. Jesus Christ. Both the ATC trainee and the ATC watch supervisor had forgotten the presence of aircraft B when the conflict alert was issued. The conflict alert was issued not at the specified three minutes before standard separation would be lost, but two and a half minutes later than that, at approximately one minute before the closest point of approach. At that time, the controllers felt it had become very difficult to maintain standard separation with ATC instructions, so it was necessary to urgently issue instructions within the limited time available to avoid collision. Regarding the circumstances in which the ATC trainee had forgotten the presence of Aircraft B, at the time of radar handoff and establishment of radio contact with Aircraft B, American Airlines Flight 157, also known as Aircraft C, was cruising on the same flight level approved for Aircraft A, and the aircraft were on converging flight paths. The ATC trainee therefore called aircraft C twice to issue an instruction to secure separation against aircraft A. However, he received no response from aircraft C because it had not established radio communication with it, so his attention was directed to aircraft C at that time. Also, just prior to contact with aircraft B, the ATC trainee communicated with aircraft D, Japan Airlines Flight 952, which had a flight number similar to that of aircraft B, and he continued communicating with another aircraft without pause immediately after. As a result of these events, the presence of aircraft B was not sufficiently kept in ATC trainee's memory. Furthermore, while later receiving comments from the ATC watch supervisor on the ATC task performed up to that time, he did not reconfirm the traffic situation on the radar display and so remained unaware of Aircraft B's presence. That was contributing factor 3 of 11. Jesus. Regarding the circumstances in which the ATC watch supervisor had forgotten the presence of Aircraft B, the ATC watch supervisor's continuing unawareness of the presence of Aircraft B was attributed to her coordination with the neighboring sector on the separation of Aircraft A and Aircraft C. The subsequent direction of her attention to obtaining contact with Aircraft C, then at the time that priority should have been given to reaffirming the air traffic situation on the radar display, her giving comments to the ATC trainee on the ATC task performed up to that time and remaining condition of forgetting. Further, the ATC watch supervisor had not received any education on appropriate training methods as training supervisors. This was a very big thing, actually. Regarding the circumstance in which the conflict alert was not issued at the specified time of three minutes before standard separation would be lost. The air route radar data processing system did not have a function to predict the possibility of separation being lost, taking into account turning flight path of aircraft. This is also a very big thing. Regarding the circumstances in which aircraft A did not comply with the RA indicating a climb. It was psychologically difficult for the captain of aircraft A to change an action which he had already started because he had already initiated a descent in accordance with the ATC instruction to descend when RA was issued. He thought the air traffic controller had issued an instruction in order to secure separation based on complete information of all aircraft in the airspace. He was maintaining constant visual contact with aircraft B and he judged that rather than climb again it was better to continue the descent because he was not confident about the aircraft's climb performance at that altitude. The captain was also not sufficiently aware of the risks of maneuvering contrary to an RA instruction. Regarding the circumstance in which Aircraft A continued descending, it was difficult for the flight crew of Aircraft A to grasp precisely the vertical separation between their own aircraft and the descending Aircraft B and the movement of Aircraft B by visual 
Observation. They were not sufficiently aware of the dangers maneuvering contrary to the RA indication. Their situational awareness from displayed TCAS information was insufficient, and the flight crew members other than the captain did not give proper advice to the captain that he should comply with the RA. Regarding circumstances in which the captain of aircraft day was not sufficiently aware of the potential dangers of maneuvering contrary to an RA indication. The flight crew members other than captain did not give proper advice to the captain that he should comply with the RA. The expressions in manuals relating to flight operations did not sufficiently instill in the flight crew recognition of the dangers of maneuvering contrary to an RA. The flight crew's training regarding TCAS had been insufficient, and there had been nothing in the cockpit resource management or CRM training regarding the division of tasks related to TCAS. Also true. Regarding the insufficiency of expressions and manuals relating to flight operations to allow flight crews to recognize the dangers of maneuvering contrary to an RA. The aeronautical information circular issued by the Civil Aviation Bureau and ICAO documents for aircraft operation did not explain that RA should be complied with and the dangers of maneuvering contrary to an RA. In particular, it was not explained that the RA should be complied with when an ATC instruction and an RA received at the same time and in conflict with each other. Regarding the injuries to the passengers, there are many passengers who had not fastened their seatbelts, and many of them rose and then dropped due to the motions of the aircraft since the accident occurred at the time when the seatbelt sign were turned off and the cabin service had just begun. Regarding injured passengers who had fastened their seatbelts, in the main... What? In the main, their seatbelts had not been properly fastened. Sure, that's English. <laughs> and one of the injured was struck by a falling person who had raised due to aircraft motion. That Your English failed epically there. Yes, I kind of get what they were getting at. Buckle your damn seatbelts. Last one. Regarding the injuries to cabin attendants. The cabin attendants were performing cabin service duties at the time of the accident, and since they did not have time to put the galley cards back to the galley, or that's English. Yep. And to secure themselves with seatbelts because of the aircraft's abrupt maneuvering, they could not keep the galley carts under control and rose together with them from the cabin floor, floated, and fell. And that is the probable cause. (laughs) And contributing factors. Which really is just findings. Basically. All condensed into a giant clump. I hope we never break that record. Ever. Ever. Ever again. Because that was three and a half pages. I. I. Okay. Somebody needs to teach them how to write a probable cause. Because that's not a probable cause. It should be just a couple sentences, and even a contributing factor could be like a sentence. (laughs) My mouth is dry. (laughs) This was a lot. Oi! And they touch on a lot of really important things. Don't get me wrong. So now we're going to do the recommendations. And there are not very many of these that I'm actually doing. Because I really only pulled out the really important things that came from this because... Uberlingen also happened. So, they recommend the improvement of issuing time for conflict alerts. The whole thing with this basically being making sure that the systems can be aware of a conflict of an aircraft should it go into a turn. Being able to issue that three minutes in advance just in case that airplane does go into a turn. Yes. I can understand how this could cause a lot of conflict alerts that are that's nuisances. Feel, yeah, feel like nuisances or unnecessary, but they're not. The more important thing, though, that comes from that, I mean, I'll read this. They recommend that a CNF alert is issued conflict. while it is a CNF conflict. Yes. yes. Just to be clear, if that means conflict. Yep. They recommend that a conflict alert is issued while it is still possible to maintain ATC separation by issuing ATC instructions, even in cases that aircraft become close as a result not only of continuing in straight flight, but also as changing heading. So that's the sum up of what they wrote in actually a very large paragraph and a half. They, in recommending this, also recommend giving an action. So 
we'll get to this in just a second, but they talk about how that should happen. They recommend indication of a resolution advisory information on their air route ATC radar display. So that's kind of what I'm getting at. In tandem with being able to determine should an aircraft cross in a turn, they also recommend it give an action, a recommended action to the air traffic controllers, and they're recommending that it do this by way of being in communication with the TCAS, which it still doesn't do. I really think that the air traffic control system should talk to TCAS. And I agree with that. I'm not sure how to facilitate that. Pretty much the solution to this problem became rely on TCAS, follow the resolution advisory given by TCAS, and when you give an instruction, first of all, the aircraft are always going to listen to TCAS anyways, which we've or discussed because of Uberlingen. Yes, which we've talked about because of Uberlingen. And basically, when they give an instruction to avoid traffic, it goes with the knowledge that they might not do what you told them to do, and that's because of TCAS. So that's how they basically resolved this issue. Nowadays, we do have a lot of very fancy technology because also this, I mean, ADSB has come along, and ADSB does very similar things where it works a lot like TCAS, but now for general aviation and much smaller aircraft. So that the whole of aviation can be so much safer, not just commercial aviation. And in that, more than likely modern radar systems can communicate with systems like this in modern TCAS, where it can get data that says, hey, TCAS is telling them to do this, you know, just so they know at least what's happening. Mm -hmm. Hand in hand with that, though, they recommended air traffic controller training updates yes. for the area. And there's a lot... That went into what they mean by that. A big part of that is how a supervisor is trained, for one. How a supervisor is trained to train. Right, to train. How training records are kept. How those that are being trained regularly get retrained. How supervisors get retrained. How on-the-job training works with a supervisor watching you and how they have the right to step in, when they have the right to step in, how they should handle an action... They had so many sections to this, and basically the gist of this is they wanted to come up with something similar to CRM, but for ATC. And there actually is kind of a means for that in most ATC organizations on Earth. So, and then of course the whole TCAS thing, that ATC should be trained on TCAS existence and how it works. And of course that happened. So nowadays, ATC is very well aware of TCAS. Skipping right along, I wanted to read this verbatim because I felt it was a little more important. They recommended, this is the really important thing that kind of goes along with the Uber Lingen thing, and this is why when we talked about this earlier, I was like, yeah, okay, they didn't have enough time to react to this report, because this came out in July, no, June. It came out in July of 2002. Yeah, July. Yeah, that's right. And Uber Lingen happened on July 1st, 2002. Right. So here's the whole thing. They recommend clarify the measures to be taken by the flight crew in response to a resolution advisory paying attention to the following points. A. The RA must always be complied with, except for a few exceptional cases responding to C and D below, which C is, if it is considered that there are any situations in which it is not appropriate to comply with the RA, it must be explained concretely and as clearly as possible what kind of situations exist. D. When the flight crew receives conflicting instructions from ATC and RA simultaneously, they are to comply with the RA as a matter of principle. If there are any exceptional circumstances under which the ATC instruction must be followed, these should be explained concretely and as clearly as possible. So basically, they need to justify 
clearly in operations manuals when you don't comply with an RA. But the gist of this whole thing is... It should is be almost never. Always comply with the RA. And obviously that's what came out of Uberlingen too. Uberlingen got way more attention than this because it actually killed people. Yeah, it was an actual, you know, midair collision. Right. And they didn't have enough time to react to this, unfortunately. But that between this incident and Uberlingen, it immediately became very clear that the ICAO had to do something about this, and the ICAO immediately recommended that RAs are always complied with. Your definition of immediately is different than my definition of immediately. It happened. In November of 2003. Okay. That's pretty immediately in the aviation world. I know. <laughs> because there are so many rules that have to be written with this, and I understand. Is that so, all the recommendations you got? That is all the recommendations I'm doing. Okay, listen. So you thought the passengers had whiplash. <laughs> so part of that is they did recommend, I will bring this up just in brief. No, that, that was a... I know, but this is I'm tying in exactly okay. with what you're talking about. One of the recommendations is fastening your seatbelts while you're freaking seated. Yeah, I was going to say, they we wrote, can bring it up again, but like... They wrote two paragraphs on that. I'm talking about a different kind of whiplash altogether. So mm -hmm. this is going to be read straight from the Wikipedia page. We all know how reliable it is. Such a reliable source. Take it with a grain of salt. But the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department and Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, and Transport investigated this incident as well for a criminal investigation. Yes, they did. In May of 2003, Tokyo police filed an investigative report concerning Hideki Hachitani, the ATC trainee, and Yasuko Momi, the ATC supervisor, and Makoto Watanabe, the pilot of Flight 907, suspecting them of professional negligence. They tried to sue everybody they felt was at fault. In March of 2004, prosecutors indicted the trainee and supervisor for professional negligence. Hachitani, then 30 years old, and Momi, then 35 years old, pled not guilty to the charges at Tokyo District Court in 2004. During the same year, the lawyer for Hachitani and Momi said that the pilots of the aircraft bore the responsibility for the near miss. Not entirely true. By, but sure. by November 16th of 2005, 12 trials had been held since the initial hearing on September 9th, 2004. The prosecution argued that the two defendants neglected to provide proper separation for the two aircraft. The instructions issued were inappropriate and that the supervisor failed to correct the trainee. The defense argued that the lack of separation would not immediately have led to a near miss and that the instructions issued were appropriate, that the TCAS procedure was not proper, and that the computer navigation fix, or CNF, had faulty data. In 2006, prosecutors asked for Hachitani, then 31, to be sentenced to 10 years in prison, and for Momi, then 37, to be sentenced to 15 years in prison. On March 20th, 2006, the court ruled that Hachitani and Momi were not guilty. The court stated that Hachitani could not have foreseen the accident and that the mix-up of the flight numbers did not have a causal relationship with the accident. Hisaharu Yasui, the presiding judge, said that prosecuting controllers and pilots would be unsuitable in this case. The Tokyo District Public Prosecutor's Office filed an appeal with the Tokyo High Court on March 31st. During the same year, the Japanese government agreed to pay Japan Airlines and Tokyo Marine and Nichido Fire Insurance a total of 82.4 million yen to compensate for the near miss, equivalent to 86 million yen in 2019. On April 11, 2008, on appeal, a higher court overturned the decision and found Hachitani and Momi guilty. The presiding judge, Masaharu Suda, sentenced Hachitani, then 33, to 12 months imprisonment, and Momi, then 39, to 18 months imprisonment, with both sentences suspended for three years. The lawyers representing the controllers appealed, but the convictions were upheld on October 26, 2010 by the Supreme Court. Which just makes me so infuriated, because it wasn't their fault. 
they training was the issue, but also there wasn't a standard operation yet in place. And how could you possibly place blame on them when they really were trying to do their job? Yeah, they were under a lot of stress, and you really can't. I mean, it's just common with the job, and the structure of their job was more the problem than them. It wasn't them. They weren't trying to cause this incident. They also weren't trying to be negligent of anything. It just happened based on the way their job was and the way they were trained or like their. I just don't like when you know reports come out and then eventually people end up getting you know convicted of crimes that really it, it's it wasn't a crime. Right. They were trying to do their job. It happens. Mistakes happen all the time. Does this potentially mean that people could have died? Yeah, you're damn right. Did people die? No. 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 And so you can't really say, oh, well, it was because they were negligent. No, they were trying to fix the problem. Right. The problem was, is they were so freaked out when it was happening. What would you would have done? Right. And I noticed that the captain's name got dropped out of this pretty early on. And I imagine that's because they figured out, well, how in the world can you possibly charge him with anything negligent when, yeah, okay, he was going with the air traffic controller's advice for one instead of the RA. And that was, you know, that was just how it was. And two, he still managed to avoid the collision by taking an evasive maneuver. Yeah, it caused injury, but they didn't die. Yeah. I can't find any recent news other than that the sentence was upheld by the Supreme Court. Right. I'm just doing a brief Google search and not finding anything. So I'm assuming they served out their sentences. Those are pretty short sentences. Probably, yeah. especially since basically that was the end of the three-year suspension. So they didn't have to serve their term no, until... That- yeah, that just means that it was put off for three years. They eventually did have to serve. Right, and that's what I mean. Since it was suspended for three years, and then it was upheld after that. Yeah. By now, they would have. Then they would have served it by yeah. now. Mm-hmm. But dear Jesus, like, it wasn't their fault. Right. It was the whole thing of, like, the perfect storm of instances having an airplane in their airspace that wasn't supposed to be in their airspace due to a volcano erupting which they had no reason to believe would happen and then it happened and then oh look we can't have them go through volcanic ash because the last time that happened and times afterwards also planes almost crashed crashed. so uh yeah like how i mean were there ways that they could have like this rookie specifically this rookie atc could have done things to keep this whole issue from happening sure the captain um, also could have done something yeah yeah and also like the other flight crew could have done something there's like a bajillion other things that could have happened that like could have caused them to collide like we don't know so thank you for tuning into that very long episode. Yeah. Yeah. That was Japan Airlines Flight 907 and Japan Airlines Flight 958. Yeah. You actually knew that one because we said it a billion the times. The amount of times we said it was a little ridiculous. Good job. So. Not only did you remember one, you remembered two for this episode. And American Airlines 157. Yep. And Japan Airlines 952. Yep. Good job. It is worth noting that. As far as I know, all four flight numbers are still used. I know the first two are definitely still used. Yep, the two that are actually near missed are still used by a 777 and a 737 on the same two routes. Well, and they would. I would hope. Yeah, nobody died. Yeah. No one died. No one died. So. Unlike next week's episode. Yep. Because we're recording that right now. <laughs> yeah, right after this. Okay. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you yep. did, go ahead and leave us a, a like. And a, a, a review. review. A review. A good review, please. And uh, that would be great. Check out the merch store. Check out the Patreon. Do all the stuffs. If you're going to send us a story, send us a story for 
December. I don't even almost. know anymore. Yeah. We're, we're, probably we're probably coming up have... on time with that one because of the holidays and stuff. Yeah. So I know we just got another story it, It's going to end up being like November slash December because we haven't even recorded the October episode yet. We're a mess. Anyway. So there okay. you go. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. We'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.